You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. A couple of weeks now, we've begun this boot camp of sorts, and it's in a detox phase. Has anyone been here the past couple of weeks? Maybe Abby hasn't. But what are some of the practices we've talked about in these first couple of weeks? The significance of getting some solitude, time away by yourself, of making some silence. How do you make silence? How do you make silence? If you want to get in a quiet space by yourself, how do you do that? It could be physically shutting every window and door, couldn't it? And putting, we drove down to Melbourne, Rosa was irritated at different times by the radio or this or that and she put a pillow over her head but it couldn't quite get everything out and on the way back we had the luxury of having some earplugs but she didn't want to put those in so she didn't all do all she could to make a quiet place. And what we've been plugging is that it is a good thing to get some silence. If we want to meet with God in a, in a, in a way where our focus is on him because we want to hear from him, we want to know what he's saying to us, we want to get the noise level down, don't we? What goes on in your quiet time? Who finds it easy to make a quiet space? Put up your hand if that's really easy for you to just find a quiet place away by yourself. Okay. Maybe one or two of us. If we're intentional about it, this is a part I think maybe we can all relate to. Let's say we've succeeded. We've got a block of time. This is going to be a quiet time. This is going to be a place I'm going to retreat. I'm going to spend some time with God. What is the first thing that meets us as we begin that time? Yeah, interruption or distraction. Noise that comes in the, in the form of, of what? Just thinking. Just thoughts flying around all directions, coming from all directions. And if we're not onto that quickly, that, whatever happens there in that initial phase can really quickly dominate what we were hoping to be our quiet time. And, and the thing I want to zero on is an example of one of those things. And the example I want to use today, because it's been hanging around for a little while, a few weeks, is shame. Shame. When we put ourselves in a quiet space, we just want to spend some time with God, we want to hear from God. And maybe a voice comes and says, Well, who are you to spend time with God? You know, this time's going to be spent dealing with all the shameful things you've done. So I want to identify some of the, the sources of some of these and what we can do about it. And in my mind, there are probably three sources just off the top of my head. First source of a, of a sense of shame can be our conscience. What's our conscience? Can someone tell me what a conscience is? What does a conscience do? It tells the difference between what? Right and wrong? Okay, so our conscience could be a source of shame. Oh, this is who I am. I know what I've done. I'm ashamed. And it can be a really loud voice. What's another source of shame? It can be other people. What people have said to us, 
what we hear that people have said about us, it may not be true, or it may be. But when we know others think we're not up to a good level, then that can cause us to feel shame, can't it? And there's one other source, and that's a source that's beyond me and beyond other people, but it's a supernatural source, and that's what we call the enemy or the devil. What he might bring in as an accusation, as a, here's who you are. This is what you've done. This is where you belong, down here. Now, interesting, right at the beginning, I think at some point, until we reach that point at which we meet Jesus and maybe absolute chaos and ruin, there's a point for another word called shameless. Now, Annette was just speaking positively about the conference, wasn't she? And we might call that an advertisement. And another expression we use for an advertisement or an ad is a shameless plug. She was making a shameless plug for the conference. Yes, I'm a CRC pastor, but you've got to come to this. This is really good. She could do that wholeheartedly because she believes in what the CRC is doing in that sense as a movement and in the people engaged with it. So she was making a plug for the conference with absolute confidence and for all the right reasons. But here's what we typically think of shameless as being, and it's a negative kind of thing. Shameless has no conscience. Shameless is like a, a conscience has been seared, like on a hot stove and it doesn't feel anything. It's tough. Nothing gets through to it, either anymore or maybe never. And so in Proverbs, we hear a description of, of someone who's doing the wrong thing and is shameless. The description is that that person licks their lips, having done something wrong, being engaged with something that's really wrong, they lick their lips and say, I've done nothing wrong. They don't feel it. They don't know it. And so... I don't think that's the place God wants us to be. In fact, I think he wants us to be delivered from that place. So whether, however that crack comes through, you know, the, the hard shell we like to put around ourselves, however God meets us, he's wanting to take us to a different place. Paul, he was a guy who worked around the early churches, wasn't he? And he, he touched on the word shame in a church at Corinth. And I just want to have a bit of a sense of how he used shame, but in a constructive kind of way. I'm not saying shame is all negative in some instances, but he was referring to people who were shameless. At that church, they were doing the wrong thing. They knew no better. They knew no different. And he's saying, you know what? I'm warning you people. You think it's okay to do what you're doing but something needs to change something needs to change he wanted to see them move from shameless to convicted and then to a sense of forgiven and then a place of doing the right thing so his concept of shame was really connected to instruction warnings and life not death get back on track change your thinking at the moment it's messing things up 
So we're going to start with the conscience. We're going to start with that shame that we feel in us due to things that we know about ourselves, what we might have done, what we might have thought about but not done. Because didn't Jesus say, look, if you've thought about it, you've done it? Who's ever felt the shame of, oh, why did I think that? That's terrible. Jesus said, if I've thought it, I've done it. And it lowers us. It just knocks us down. So I'll use a couple of people to illustrate this. Peter. Peter, who thought he was Jesus' best friend. And what did Peter do? If ever a guy was going to know some sense of shame or feel totally unworthy, totally out of the way in terms of ever being forgiven, it would be Peter, wouldn't it? Here's Peter who says, Jesus, I will never leave you. I will never, ever run away. And what does he do? When Jesus is taken by the authorities, because we know he's going to be killed by them, Peter denies even knowing him three times. He says, no, I don't know this man. I don't know Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. And at that moment, can you try and imagine the depth of that shame that Peter's feeling? His best best friend, he said, I don't even know him. There he is dying on a cross and now he's dead. Can you imagine shame worse than that? Now having said that, we have experiences of shame that we allow to get bigger than they ever needed to be as well. I'll get back to that later. Another person, Paul, that same guy who was talking to that church at Corinth, do you think he would have been a person who felt shame of some sort? A person who goes around rounding up and harming the people who follow Jesus. He says, they're doing the wrong thing. You know, they need to be rounded up. They need to be jailed. They need to be killed. They need to die because they're doing the wrong thing. And then who does Paul run into? He runs into Jesus, who says to him, why are you persecuting me? Why are you giving me a hard time? I wonder if that first instant that Paul discovers actually Jesus is real and here's what I've been doing to his friends, I wonder if his head would have just dropped. You know, in those days when he's blind, before he gets to Ananias, another friend of Jesus who who sets Paul straight and helps Paul begin this journey with Jesus, I wonder if in those early days Paul's head is just down and he's so ashamed of everything he's done if we're going to have time with God and if we're going to have this quiet time set in the right space then we have to invite the Holy Spirit in to work on our thinking to move ahead to be able to look at Peter and know that Peter, who had great shame, came to see when Jesus was raised to life that he was forgiven. In the same way Saul 
was transformed by the Holy Spirit and came to know that he was forgiven regardless of what he'd been responsible for, that he didn't have to carry that as an example. Here's what happens if we don't get hold of shame, though. And it's an extreme example. Forgive me for using such an extreme example. And this is, this is back before Jesus' time. And again, it's, it's in the Proverbs. And I think we should never think this way. But here's what it says. It's not specifically shame, but it's something related, and that's guilt. It says in Proverbs 28, verse 17, Anyone tormented by the guilt of murder, so anyone who's been a murderer, will seek refuge in the grave. Anyone who's murdered someone, they will feel such guilt that they'll want to die. Isn't, I can't imagine what it must be to carry that around. But see how I'm relating it to shame? Someone who's killed someone said, I don't even want to live. I have done such a wrong thing. The worst thing I could ever do, I don't deserve to live. The second half of this verse, I'll read the first bit again. Anyone tormented by the guilt of murder will seek refuge in the grave. Let no one hold them back. Meaning, let them. Don't get in the way. If they want to kill themselves or if we want to execute them, well, let's help them on their way. Let's not get in their way. Let's just let them be destroyed by their guilt. That's an enormous weight, isn't it? I don't want... If that's the length to which guilt can drive a person, then I don't want us to be driven to despair by shame either. And nor does God. It just can't be us. If we ask each of us to think of something for which we've felt shame, it's not going to take a long time to come up with something, is it? And I guess I could maybe use this as a confessional here and say, here's something I'm really ashamed of. And you might look at it and say, oh, yeah, that's really shameful. But I could give how many examples of that? And we might even look at him and say, well, thank goodness he's done more shameful things than me. Or we might say, wow, if people only knew what I've done, they don't know how ashamed I am because of what I've done. None of us is immune from this. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that we haven't felt ashamed. But it's not to be like the weight of, that a murderer feels. But our consciences don't let us off the, the hook, do they? Unless we do something about it. So that's may, maybe how we react to our own actions or our words. Things we're aware of that we've done, we, we know without anyone calling it out in us. Other times our shame can be in response to other people and what they've said to other people, what they've said to us that causes us shame. Who has been shamed by someone else? Who's had someone call them a loser? Who's had someone say, you're an idiot, you don't know anything? Has anyone ever not had that? It can even happen in, a, in our own families, can't it? It can happen. Yeah, if you're a parent, it might be your kids. You know, maybe we're a little more immune to that. This is other people. 
and how other people might shame us. But I want to make this point a few times. What other people say about us, it may have its origins in truth, but it may not. Our world is a shaming culture, isn't it? It doesn't like to forgive any, anyone. It wants forgiveness for itself and, and don't, don't judge me. But at the same time, it doesn't matter if you're a sports person or a celebrity. You get caught doing the wrong thing, they never want to forgive you. They never want to let you off the hook. They want to remind you of it time and time again. Disgraced former this, disgraced person that. But that will totally debilitate us. That will totally make us dysfunctional, non-functional, whatever we want to call it, if they're the only voices we're going to listen to. Shame doesn't line up with who God says we are. And its removal from, my, from us, is that's a priority. That's a first thing for the Holy Spirit as he changes us into understanding we're made in God's image. We reflect his image. Is there anything shameful about God? No, we've been transformed and are increasingly becoming more like him. So we just can't let this stick. So I'm just going to mention a woman who comes into a house. Jesus is in a house and he's... I'll give um, Steve the heads up for the verses. Luke 7, 38 to 39. Jesus is in the house. He's with some very religious people who know it all. They know who's right, who's wrong. They make assessments about who's right, who's wrong. And this woman who's been a sinner, but it could be a man who's been a sinner. Jesus was always in trouble. Oh, you hang out with that person. They're drunk. You hang out with that person. They steal. It just happens to be a woman on this occasion. And she's doing something amazing. She's washing Jesus' feet with her tears. She's tipping perfume on them. She's drying his feet with her hair. She'd had a sinner's reputation. That's what people knew her as. If they saw her in the street, that's she is or does the same as maybe Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Oh, that's the guy who takes much, too much money, rips us all off. Oh, if I could get him in a, in a quiet corner by myself one day, I'd flog him. I'll just read that verse. Luke 7, 38 to 39. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, invited Jesus to dinner, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Why would this woman be doing such a thing? She'd had an encounter with Jesus and she recognised entirely who he was and what that meant to her. She knew that it meant forgiveness for her she now was totally shame-free. If I can call this message anything, I would say, be shame-free. 
If you don't think you are shame-free, be shame-free. It's what God calls you to. It's what he does for us. Be shame-free. So she now feels no shame, just this marvellous relief of perfect love from Jesus. Where is she doing this act? In the very place where she would get the most judgment and ordinarily feel the most shame with all the religious people who determine who's the most sinful and who's done the right thing. She has no shame. She just wants to be there with Jesus. She's thanking him for what he's done for her. There's no room in our houses, in this house today, for shame if Jesus is living with us. And so any sense of shame that we find attached to us, like, you know, a sticky label or, or a piece of Velcro that, you know, you just when you peel off one, here's another one over there. These are peeled off and it can only be peeled off, removed from us, when we know, and I know this is key here in Coolerman, I ran into another guy at the conference who was talking about the very same thing. When we know that God loves, accepts, and forgives us. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 6. And I used this scripture in a slightly different context not that long ago. But I'm going to use it here to relate to what we're talking about today. And it's talking about how we approach God. Now, what do you think you need to do to be worthy of being in God's presence? Leave that question hanging in your mind as I read these verses. <clears throat> as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Will never be put to shame. We go back to the verse, the very first verse there, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by people, but chosen by who? God. Remember what I said at the start about that speaker who was winding up the conference. He said, the world says this, but here's the truth. They'll say it's the opposite way around, which makes sense of rejected by people. And we are rejected by people for, by all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of reasons. But chosen by God and precious to him. Offering spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable, meaning he accepts who we are and what we do. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And who's it through? Jesus, who was the chosen one, who made it possible. Just to bounce off that opposite thing once more, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. And this shows the world's view and its shaming culture but we live in the truth of what God says of us. 
1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness, utter silliness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it may look silly to the world. It's not silliness to us to have that weight lifted. I can't bear the thought of living under the weight of some of the things I've known as shame in my life. Some of the things I've heard people say to me, unintentionally not knowing, but yet have brought shame to me. I remember a particular situation and, and a person said, oh, you know, haven't seen you here or doing this for X amount of time, you know. Did this happen? And having to say back to the person, oh, actually, yeah, it did. And just thinking, couldn't help you but be honest, but, but feel the shame of something that was actually a bit beyond my control, but something that no less caused me to feel shame when you know other people are aware of it and bring it to your attention, not even intentionally. So other people's words can bring that to us. But we have to know that they have no power. Do you know there are also consequences? This is just a little bit of a sidetrack, only for a moment. There are consequences to burying other people in shame by our words. We have to be really mindful of what we say to other people. We're never going to get it right all the time. You know, that's, that's fine. Because sometimes, you know, unintentionally we're not aware that someone else is already feeling shame about something. And, and the smallest of, of jokes about something that you thought was unrelated can actually hurt another person. But Jesus really had a go at the religious people of his time. And this is a Luke 11.46. Jesus replied, These are the sort of people that would have been around the lady who was washing and drying Jesus' feet and tipping perfume on them. Jesus replied, You experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves won't lift a finger to help them. You know, as an illustration, Glenn looks like a strong fella. So I could get him out here and let's say I had a pallet of pavers over here you know, pavers that we might make a courtyard with or something and Glenn's here, my pallet's here. And I say, oh, can you just hold this, Glenn? And I hand him a paver and he stands there and he says, oh, yeah, I wonder what this illustration's about. But imagine I keep handing him pavers. A paver, it's got a bit of mass to it. You, you feel a bit of weight in a paver. By the time you've got five in your hand, you're starting to think about, hmm, how am I best going to juggle papers? Because I see he looks like he's going to hand me more. There's only so much Glenn's going to be able to do, let alone hold up or juggle before it just all comes crashing down. Maybe him with it might land on his toe or whatever. Let's not burden people with things. Let's be careful with our friends. Let's be careful with our families, our kids. Let's not put too much on them. This can happen in the church, even. 
And we say, surely not here in the church. Surely not here when we're all together. 1 Corinthians 11.22. I think there's a reason Paul was using that word shame in that constructive sense with that church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11.22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So people were feeling ashamed because I'm being made to feel like you're not up to our level. You don't have as much as us. You don't dress as well as we do. I love it when shaming is disarmed. And again, they argue about whether this should be in the scriptures because the earliest manuscripts they say don't have it. But it's in one of the Gospels and it's the one that perhaps a lot of us know about and that's the woman who's about to be stoned. And there's nothing more shameful than that, is there? To her family, her relatives, that here's our daughter or our mother or our sister about to be stoned. It shames the family. It maybe shames the community. What's shameful is about what's about to occur, isn't it? So here are these people that are picking up stones... And they're going to do this ultimate act of shaming on so many levels. And then Jesus speaks and says, look, if you've got no sin, if you've got nothing to be ashamed of, go ahead. You, you peg a stone. They'll put them down. Utterly stripped of power because they know each of them something of what shame is. But I like that. I like that description. I have a picture in my mind of each stone sitting on the ground where it belongs. Not harming someone, but powerless, unable to be used. I reckon that is such a great picture. Matthew six fourteen to 15. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you don't forgive others their sins, your father won't forgive your sins. Let's not be about shaming. Let's not be about I'm better than you're down here because, you know, we might start to become like those people who picked up stones. And God doesn't look well upon that. We're not in the shaming business. In the worst act of shaming that we've referred to with Peter before, Jesus was shamed and made the object of utter humiliation by other people. And here's the thing. He gets put up on our cross and our shame is given over to him. That's a shameful act of humanity, to put him there. And yet he accepts our shame, yet he dies in our shame in a shameful manner. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. This is in the, in the thing that happens between us and others. We crucify Jesus. We shame others. Others shame us. Others shame Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. 
My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't want us to bear anything. We've got one last source of shame. There's us, our consciences. There's other people. What was the third one? Can anyone remember? The, capital E, the air, enemy, or the devil, whatever name you might want to call him. And the demons, whatever you want to call fallen angels. Desperately trying to shame us, but powerless, because their victory never happened. They were defeated. Their efforts are futile because of Jesus. Do you want to be convinced of that? If the thought's coming in, it's not from your conscience. If you feel like, no, I just, I feel these constant accusations. They must be true. I just hear so many of them. It's just like the demonic reveals itself. And I'm not, I'm not talking possession here. I'm talking about origin. That which is of the enemy reveals itself because it's always about death. It's always about dragging you down. It's always about saying of you something that's different to what God says of you. And the efforts are futile. This is Revelation 12, 9 to 11. Revelations 12, 9 to 11. And I'll pause because I think it's just fantastic. It's a pretty picturesque sort of description. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. There's that them and us thing, isn't it? The whole truth versus truth. The world's truth versus God's truth. Who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, this is the great dragon, Satan, the serpent, the devil. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, who died for our shame, and by the word of their testimony. Our testimony is that we trust Jesus that we believe in him, that we've made him the Lord of our lives and that works its way out as we reflect his image. By the word of their testimony, they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The world wants to come us, overcome us with death. It wants to do it through shame. It wants to do it through guilt, lies, all of these things. The three sources of shame now, what are they? Us, our conscience. What's the second one? Other people. The last one, the enemy. Shame cannot stand up. Shame cannot stand up. Two words I said earlier, they rhyme. One's a very short word. It's only two letters. B, the second word is... Be shame-free. Be shame-free. When you get down into that quiet time, when you're wanting to hear from God, you set the tone of that by silencing those voices 
who come to say, you have no right to be here. You have no right to talk to God, hear from God, be with God. Silence them right there at the beginning. There will still be other distractions, I'm sure, because, you know, you'll say, is that my granddaughter in the bathroom? What did I leave out? The, oh, yes, the bubble bath. The... There will be distractions. But we've got to really take hold of those times and set them up right at the beginning. Don't allow other voices, ours, other people's and the enemies to crowd God out. And you know what? That is a great thing to share with other people. I look around and I see people being asked to bear the load of something that doesn't belong to them. I see people saying, this happened because of you and I'm not going to forgive you. Or this happened because of you and I want you to suffer a little bit. Or we hear our voice saying, you deserve everything you get. Be Shame-free. That's what Jesus gives us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're amazing. You're amazing that you would pay the price and bear our shame. That you would be humiliated in such a way that we can know what it is to be free from shame. Dear God, our Father, that you chose us, that you see us as being so valuable that you handle us as a precious building brick and you build a house for your presence and live in and among us. We thought we were undeserving, but you loved us so much that you sought us, chose us, set us free in forgiveness and you give us life now. Let us walk in your truth. Let us be a revelation. Let our testimony to the world be a revelation and a shining light that we are free because of you and that all can be free because of you. We celebrate and glorify your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.